Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. I'm excited to have two guests on the DealQuest podcast today. First, we have Brian Scanlon, managing partner for DealGen Partners, a deal origination company sourcing deals for private equity funds and strategic acquirers. Uh, currently, DealGen Partners manages $2.7 billion in buy-side mandates. Brian started his career in the investment space selling his marketing agency, Social Mediators, in 2014 and entering the world of sell-side M&A at O'Hare Management. During his time at O'Hare, Brian built a deep network in the, in the investment banking world. And in 2016, started DealGen Partners with the mission of delivering quality deals to companies in an acquisition mode. He is a, well, I see Babson College here, which is like the, the entrepreneurship school. I, I remember I got familiar with Babson in my early days when I was helping, I, I helped Steve Mariotti at, at Nifty rewrite his, his legal part of his curriculum back in the very early days. You know, and he was, he was connected with Babson and various other ways. Any case, so I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. So Brian, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. And we also have Joe Zanka. Joe is an experienced business owner who sold a company and now manages deal flow for $2.5 billion worth of mandates for PE funds at DealGen Partners. He works with, with PE funds. I mean, everything, basically these guys are partners. They work together on these deals. And so I'm super excited to have you on the podcast as well. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm Brian's business partner and yeah, yeah. So anything that you just read about, you know, what we do and how we operate, you know, I'm pretty much a twin. We do the same. <laughs> exactly. We do it together. So I didn't need to, I didn't need to repeat the same info about the company that, uh, that I repeated, you know, before. So, so guys, and whoever wants to start first, it's fine. So, you know, before we talk about all the great stuff that you're doing now and the clients and how you serve them and how you work with the PE firms. I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is being in the M&A space might not have been it back then, but you tell me. Go ahead, no. Joe. Yeah, no, I, I actually wanted to probably be a firefighter, to be honest. My my dad was a firefighter, you know, and, and he, I, I really enjoyed that career. And my brother actually is too now. So they, they both, they work together in my hometown, you know, doing that job. So back then, I, I was in love with baseball, so if baseball didn't work out, which it didn't, I think I wanted to be a firefighter. Yeah, it's you know, it's kind of cliche. How many, how many guests, including me, of course, you know, it's, at some point in their younger life wanted to be some sort of sports player, and then many of us got very realistic on that. Even at that young age, that that wasn't going to happen. It already no. happened, right? No, when I was twelve, I had some hope, and then and then I booked the big <laughs> diamond, and and people started throwing ninety miles an hour, and and I realized that that wasn't probably going to happen. Love it, love it. Okay. And you? Yeah. Well, I, not to, not to follow along, but I actually, I was just cleaning out the basement and found a thing I wrote in like sixth grade that was, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wanted to 
shortstop for the Yankees, but this guy, Derek Jeter, was a little better than me. So that didn't work out either. But, you know, baseball was kind of a, a lifelong passion and still is for both me and Joe. And that's really how we connected. And the business thing, you know, took shape once we really got to Babson. But until then, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, man. I probably still don't know what I want to do, but I know this one's working. So good, good for now. I love it. I love it. All right. And, what, and one more question looking back. What was the first deal that each of you did? It could be something small when you were a kid. It could be something early in your career. Whatever, whatever comes to mind. Whoever wants to go first. Yeah. I, I started a, a storage company when I was in college. I was 20 years old. And me and me and a guy who was on the baseball team. So I played, I played baseball at and That's how Brian and I met. And we can get okay. into that story later. But I started a company with another guy on, on our team and we created a website. We popped up a website. A lot of kids that go to that school are from, you know, foreign countries or they don't live around Boston. So when they traveled home, they need storage of their items. They need somewhere to put all their stuff. And so we, we sure. stored them in, in my buddy's basement. And it was, you know, the first really entrepreneurial endeavor that I had gotten into, but we popped up a website. We got a bunch of people to sign up for what we did. We went around, rented a truck, picked up all the stuff, stored it, in the basement, you know, we each made like, you know, close to $10,000. And I was like, well, this entrepreneur thing's pretty cool. <laughs> and so that, that was really the first deals that I made. And, and the first, my first experience dealing with, you know, vendors, we had U-Haul who was yelling at us because we delivered truck three days late. We had Barrett's mom who, you know, was wondering if she needed to take out additional insurance on her home because we had 60 student stuff in there. And yeah, no, it was, it was the hell that we, I had a partner. I was my first experience dealing with the business. Right, right, right. It's just partnership deal, sure. Kind of dove in head first, but it ended up working out, you know, pretty well. And, and we, we actually continued doing that business for another eight years before I sold it and, and got into doing it to Brian. I, I assume some point during that eight years, the stuff came out of the basement. Yeah. Yeah. That was a one time basement deal. And then we, we leveled up our facility to a real, a real. <laughs> It's an area that's fascinated me, actually, because um, you know, I've, I've still got a, a, a organization buddy who his main business is restaurant business, but he's, he's got storage units. We had somebody on, this is one of the real estate episodes where they, part of what they did was invest in storage units. And I actually, I, I like it as an investment, right? This is so few moving pieces. And in most states, you've got good laws on, on your side if people obey it in terms of your ability to auction off their stuff, as people might know from the. TV show storage wars or whatever, but yeah, so it's, it's an interesting business even to this day. It's a good model. Yeah. It's definitely a good model. You know, people are living in smaller spaces, buying things is easier than it's ever been before. So people are buying a lot of stuff and they have nowhere to put it. So, you know, the units that you, if you own them, they end up full because no one has any room. Yeah. Okay. And what about you? Yeah, I, similar to Joe, I, I started a, a business in college kind of by accident. My, my aunt had a PR firm in New York and one of her clients said, hey, we want to be on this Facebook thing. This was in 2007. And she was 56 at the time and said, I don't even have a Facebook. I was the youngest person she knew. Right. So she said, hey, if I give you 500 bucks a month, will you post on this company's Facebook page as them? Like I did the quick math. That was $500 beers at, at our pub on campus. So I, I said, I'm in, you know, that, that I could do a lot with 500. And then from there it turned into, Hey, I have another client for you. I have another client for you. I started to get my own clients and ultimately, ultimately we were lucky enough to sell that. But yeah, that started, that was definitely the, the first real deal up until then it was all, you know, trading baseball cards. I love it. I love it. You know, and you know, that's fine. I, I sort of laugh because you say, you know, 57 back then, which was old for Facebook. Now it's probably young for Facebook. Now it's, now it's right down the middle, I think, right? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, 
people you know who are your age back then are like Facebook's so over. And yeah. you know, it's yeah, fifty seven's right probably in the middle it's the grandparents' social media page. Right. Although although frankly, I mean I'm jo- I mean we we still we still use it on the business side and you know and, and it's still good, but 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 obviously it's aged up a lot. Definitely. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So so yeah, so let's hear the story. I mean, so both of you guys mentioned you know selling businesses. You met at Babson, you eventually came together. Let, let's let's talk about the story of you guys coming together and then I, I probably want to hark back to your own personal sales as as a preview to what you what you do. But tell us the coming together story. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had after I had left the sell side investment banking space, I, I kind of went back into the marketing world and we were servicing, you know, all kinds of industries, but knew we had an in on the PE strategic acquirer world because it was a unique model where we didn't just have to charge a monthly retainer for our typical marketing services. We could provide some more detailed services and actually be attached to the value of the deal, which yeah. takes that, you know, value up exponentially. And after Joe had sold his business, it just made a lot of sense for us to finally come together on something. We work really well together. We've known each other, you know, for quite a while. And I think it helped that we didn't get involved in a business together right away. We kind of watched each other's careers progress and realized, I think it'd make a lot of sense to do this, you know, together. And then when Joe came on board, you know, he, uh, he kind of came up with the offer to this PE, you know, strategic acquire world. And it's been, it's been us burying our head and focusing on that ever since. And, you know, lucky enough right now, we, we've acquired enough clients that we have quite a bit of money behind us to go find deals for. And we work with some really big dogs and, and cool people and in a space that, you know, we get to, we get to travel in some cool circles, but also get deals done and help people sell their companies, help people buy companies. And it's, it's rewarding, you know? I love it. I love it. So before I turn it over to Joe to talk about that offer and how you guys, you know, sort of built that end of it, let's, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about your journey getting there because, you know, you mentioned PE background, you mentioned selling a company. So talk to me a little bit about that journey and yeah, I'm sure you're way smarter on deals than you, than, than you were only because we all are more smarter on deals, the more of them we do and how we go. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, selling that, be selling that first company, what you learned from that, what you did well, what you didn't do well, and then what you learned a little bit on the PE road before you came here. And then I'll bounce it back over to Joe. So uh, let's yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the sale was not, I wasn't really looking for it. It was a, a connection that came through who was kind of gobbling up books of business in the marketing space. Yeah. And, you know, it was a, a, a friendly connection, had a M&A advisor that was a friend of mine who said, hey, you know, you're not going to get rich off this, but it'll put enough money in your pocket that you know, I went back and got my MBA, coached college baseball for a little bit, did some things I wanted to do, blew all that money pretty quickly. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a ton, but going through that sale was, was relatively easy, but it opened me up to that whole world of the investment banking side of things. And the, the guy who helped me through that sale as my advisor said, Hey, you got 12 months of non-compete. You're going to start going back to school. Why don't you come on board with us and learn this whole sell side game? Because I, you know, I was pretty pretty easy through the transaction. So he's like, you might be pretty good at this stuff. And that was great because then I got involved in the, the, the way deals fall apart, you know, and, yeah. and a, kind of a crash course in, in deals crumbling over a couple of years working there, which opened my eyes to, hey, there's a lot of meat on the bone with these PE groups. You know, they want to see a ton of opportunity. And as a sell side banker, you're really only working on a few deals a year but on the buy side, you're looking at, you know, we work with a group who saw 3,000 plus deals last year that they evaluated, right. uh, but I was only working on three. Right. So, you know, that, that was kind of the way 
through the sale, entering into that space, and then stepping back saying, maybe there's a different seat we can sit in, in this world that services both sides with, you know, not as much reliance on a single deal closing. We work on, you know, 70, 80 deals at a time now. Love it. All right. So before, before I bounce to the jail, I got two follow-up questions for you. One is on your original sale deal, which like you yeah. said, wasn't, wasn't your, you know, get rich and retire deal, but it was a deal that gave you some money and to be able to do something you wanted to do. You mentioned that, that it was a friendly deal. It was, so we, but you also mentioned you had an M&A advisor. So did you go through a process? Did they shop you at all? Or was this a quote unquote off-market deal? It was an off-market deal. It was, you know, essentially proprietary, even though I had that advisor. More so because I said, listen, this is a good opportunity. I don't think the grass is greener. Wanted to go on and do other things. I had, you know, been a little burned out in the marketing agency space pretty quickly. Uh, So the M&A advisor was basically, hey, make sure I don't screw this up. You know, I want to cross the T's, dot the I's, make sure the check clears and we're all good with transferring this. It wasn't a Hey, I'm getting a three X now. Can you go find me, you know, a five multiple and, and let's run a process. I didn't want to go through that. It just wasn't the right time in my life, career, et cetera. And, you know, luckily I I had some good counsel to say, Hey, take this deal and go do something else. You're 23 years old. You know, you got plenty of time. So it was fun. Yeah. I love it. Cause that's always the thing. There are people who have strong opinions on the, on the sell side, you should always run a process. You should never take, of course, on the buy side, you should always look for the proprietary market deals. Yeah. On the sell side, you should always run a process. And and while I understand the logic for that, I think it's often applicable. I, I'm also not a guy who's like a big fan of hard and fast rules, you know, no matter what, circumstances are different. All right. All right. Second, my, my, my last follow-up question before I bounce it over to, to Joe, Brian, is you mentioned when you're at the PE side, you learned the lessons about how, what, how deals go bad and what happens. So I know we could spend hours talking about that, but give me one or two or three quick, what are the biggest reasons why you, that, you know, what was your learning there to say, oh, these are the biggest reasons why deals, deals go bad. Yeah. You know, I, I, when I, I had three deals fall apart in a matter of 60 days that would have brought about three and a half million dollars of success fees to me, my side, you know, not how much were you counting that money early on, right? Dude, I had boats pulled up on the you know website. I was buying Rolexes in my head. I was ready to go, and they fell apart for you know at that time what I thought were reasons out of our control. Right, one of the owners' wives said, "Hey, I don't think you should sell the business right now." Another guy changed his mind about the buyers. I don't think they're really the right people for us. And I mean, this was post LOI asset purchase agreement type of falling apart. The third one was. It, our, our seller dragged his feet so much with his attorney on the purchase agreement that the numbers started to decline in the business. And the buyer said, this isn't the same company we bid on six months ago. Yeah. You know, So I kind of stepped away and said, man, all this stuff, we, what, what could we do? There's nothing we could do. And you know, I kind of had a conversation with someone who said, no, there was a lot you could do. You could have learned that that wife wasn't really on board. You could have you know, made sure this seller and buyer were a little better fit for each other and got to know each other before this and didn't get blinded by the purchase price. You know, you could have pushed that seller quicker and realized, you know, educated his lawyer on, hey man, the numbers aren't great right now. Let's let's get this thing signed. So it was a good lesson in, there are things you can control that you say, oh, it's easy to chalk it up as it's out of my control. But if you want to be good at this, you got to have your thumb on every, you know, point along the process. And I think that's something that we do pretty well now because we sit in an interesting position where we're not in control of the entire, you know, supply chain of a deal, but the pieces we are in control of, we are, you know, obsessive over staying in control of that, making sure we're, we're driving the ball down the field. Love it. Love it. 
So Joe, let's, let's go in the opposite order to you. Meetings, we went back with, with, with Brian. Let's, let's start at the beginning for you. What, talk to us about the company and, and, and your sale process, what you did after that. And then I want to get to, hey, what is that offer, that unique sauce that you guys provide now? So why don't you- Yeah, yeah. Sure. So like I mentioned, you know, we, I started that company when I was in college and, and after our senior year, we graduated, it was me, you know, it was in 2015, call it. I went and got a job, you know, a couple of jobs in the real, in the real world doing, you know, one was recruiting. I did that for about two weeks, you know, staffing. And then I got a job, you know, I got a call back from a real estate company. That's what I really wanted to do. And I worked there for about a year, but I always, you know, I was never really a great employee, right? So I, I, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to, you know, I found that out through doing it and then, and then going and not doing it, you know, and I was like, you know, that's what I should be doing. And I believed in my ability to, to get that done. Now it took a lot, but we, so me, me, the guy that I started that other business with and a third partner went back. We, we created this brand called on demand storage. It still exists today. And we provide basically, you know, self-storage services, mostly for college students and for, you know, businesses. So we go out and provide, you know, on-demand, you know, basically turnkey storage for, let's say you're a restaurant this time of year where, where we live in Boston, start to get cold out. They, they need a place to put their outdoor furniture. We'd come, you know, we'd send people, pick it up, store it for them for the, you know, six months and bring it back to them when they're ready to put it back out. That's like that, where, you know, companies are always on the move. They're always looking to store things. And. So it was great. I had a good experience, ran it for about five, five years, five plus years. And, you know, we kind of hit a crossroad in the business where, you know, they wanted to take it one direction. I kind of thought we should take it a different direction. It was just, you know, it would have required some investment to do, you know, one of the options. And so they ended up buying out my piece of the equity. And, you know, I sold, I sold my side of the business. It was, you know, great. We still very good friends, you know, mutual. I played golf with them two weeks ago. And so a lot of respect around it. And, but more importantly, I learned a ton about, you know, what it's like to run a business, what it looks like to be an entrepreneur, why, you know, the opportunity to sell might come up, whether it's for a reason that, you know, you want to go do something else, whether it's for they've ran a company for 30 years, whatever it may be, there's always different reasons why people are looking to sell their business. And, sure. and there's a whole process that goes into doing it, even if you're selling it to your business partner, at the end of the day, it's never a straightforward transaction. There's always different things you have to talk about, go through. So when I did that, you know, I, I exited and prior to even exiting, I knew I was going to exit. So Brian and I started talking, he was filling me in on what he had going on. And, you know, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, he graciously made me a partner when I joined and, you know, we kind of put our heads together and said, Hey, where should we focus? You know, both of us had always owned companies, but we've always, you know, tried to be a little bit jack of all trades and. And, you know, it, it can, it can, it's nice having a lot of opportunities, but it's also nice to focus on one that you really believe in. And yeah. so we decided to focus here and, you know, in doing so, we, like Brian mentioned, you know, we, we work with a lot of private equity groups and strategic acquirers and, and we had a lot of knowledge and what it's like to run a marketing agency, right? So the way we crafted this offer was pretty simple. It's. It takes a long time to find a business that, that wants to sell and then get that process completed, right? Like no matter what, it's a few months. And so we knew we needed to buy ourselves some time in order to, to be good at this and for, for these guys that were paying us. So that's one thing. Second thing is it takes a lot of time, you know, typically it takes some time to get a marketing campaign up and running effectively where, you know, it's maximized and it's, it's, it's going full throttle. Sure. And so. 
And thirdly, the business model of being an agent, you know, it, it, you can be the best agent in the world and every invoice you send out, you're wondering whether or not you, it's going to get paid. Yeah. And so what we did was we said, Hey, look, let's give ourselves and our clients the best opportunity to succeed in this relationship. You know, we're going to do business development for them. They're going to be able to save themselves some time and doing all the hunting and pecking of reaching out to companies individually and figuring out whether or not they want to sell. We're going to take on that burden. We're going to apply, you know, our marketing skills that we've developed by being business owners and being CMOs for a long time and hone in on just doing origination for these guys, reaching out to entrepreneurs, reaching out to M&A advisors, investment bankers, anybody who could be involved in a sale process that might know somebody that wants to sell a company. We, we, we have the ability to get in front of them and talk to them. So the offer that we crafted was, you know, we charge a working capital deposit at the beginning of a relationship with a, pre, a PE or strategic. That deposit buys them a year worth of our service, and it also buys them exclusivity to a vertical. So they want to buy FinTech, you know, SEB, technology businesses. We only have one company that's looking for those. So anytime something comes through the pipeline that, that meets that criteria, they're the bucket we drop it into. And what it buys us is enough time to get those campaigns cranking, you know, being able to let the, the groups that we already know, know that we have a new client looking for these types of opportunities. And then it gives us a year for them to be able to transact on a business. And we actually take it a step further. If, if one of our clients does not, they, they retain us to do this job and they do not acquire a business within 12 months, we make that retainer refundable. So we say, hey, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We know we're going to be good at this. We know we have a farm big enough where there's deals in here that, that are going to fit what you're looking for. And if we don't, you know, we're willing to, to give it all back. And it really resonates with people. You know, you kind of, you, you, you take away that, you basically take away all the risk, right? And, and we know that at the end of the day, our best opportunity to get paid is on the success fee of the deal. So if someone does transact, you know, we do get typically a 1.5 to 2% success fee on the value of the deal that they bought. But that's where, you know, inevitably our company generates the most income and where they are actually, you know, it ends up being not for nothing, but some of the sizes of the companies that we're looking to, to bring on are, it ends up being a little bit of a rounding error at the end of the day for them. Sure. And, and they're, they're buying, you know, a $10 million business, let's say. So... <laughs> It's a fascinating business model, guys, because on the one hand, you know, you're, you're taking more risk, which shows your entrepreneurial background, right? And, and, and I say that in a way, I mean, I'm not going to disparage anybody, but right, but there is a difference between a true entrepreneur and a, and a self-employed person, right? And most people who do marketing are self-employed, like a lot of, you know, folks, and they're trading time for services or maybe they're charging project fees or whatever it is. But the point is, your model's riskier to you in that you can spend a year doing a great job, but they don't close a deal for a million other reasons, right? Economy can go bad, they decide, whatever it is. Um, so you're taking that risk. But on the flip side, when the deal's closed, you're getting a much bigger piece of the piece of the pie than anybody who would be charging you know, based upon a more traditional fee-for-services model. Yeah. 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 No, that, that was that, a way to separate ourselves from the, the marketing agencies who right. say, oh, we're going to send an email and book you an appointment. These guys don't want appointments. They want deals. They want that's right. deals. That's right. But we're bringing you closed deals. That's why we're different. That's phenomenal. I love, I, love, I love the model. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. 
Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So you you mentioned it generally, but I mean, so are you, you said both sides, but are you mainly working on the buy side with the PE and and is it all PE or are you working directly with with some of the buyers or are you working with the funders? Like give us a little more detail on that. Yeah. So we, uh, we do, we're retained and paid strictly from the buy side, whether that's a private equity fund looking to make a, you know, minority or majority acquisition, or it's a strategic acquire corporate development type of play where they're looking to add bolt-ons to their company. Yeah. Uh, so we're paid by the buyers, but it lets us sit in an interesting position where when we approach a seller, we say, Hey guys, we're aligned with you. We right. want you to get bought for the most amount of money possible. And they open up to us and then we're able to, you know, be liaisons in that deal process in a way that, you know, an, an investment banker already has that veil of you're working for the other guy, you know, to, to, to him. And yes, we're very loyal to our buyers. We're not playing both sides of the fence, but that alignment with the seller builds trust in a way that they want us to know what's going to help them get a deal closed. And then we can relay that to a buyer in a way that a banker might not be able to you know, with that guard up. So yeah, we're strictly retained by the buyers. We never take a dime out of a seller's pocket. If they want to sell their business, we are in the business of helping people get that transaction done. And another, you know, kind of unique model. Most people are trying to dip into the seller's pockets and the buyers are the ones with all the money, you know? Okay. So let's just yeah, go yeah, to which, the is, the money. which is smart, right? So, so uh, are there any particular industries that you, that you focus more in or is it pretty general in terms of industry types? Yeah, there's a, Staff and technology companies are where we have the most buyers. You know, let's say tech, you know, software, whether it's in, in, in the beauty of it is, you know, we, we've done a decent job of building out, you know, kind of tangential funds. So there's some funds that are looking for flat and declining businesses. They're looking for companies that are basically broken. The software is not broken. The software works fine, but the company can't grow. So we have got groups that want to go out and buy those. And then we have other groups that want to go buy for companies that are growing at 30% a year. And then we have kind of everybody in between, right? So we, we've done a good job, like I said, of providing that level of exclusivity. As the deal comes down, we can kind of quickly determine whether or not who it fits, you know, and whether or not it's a good fit for a particular client. So software is a big one. And then, you know, tech enabled services and industrial businesses are the other two verticals that we're really focused on, you know? So, and, and honestly, you know, just business services in general, right? Like B2B service businesses are are ones that, you know, we feel strongly we, we can move. You know, we have, we have guys that want to buy those types of things. So software is right down the middle. And then, you know, some of the groups that we work with are pretty large and they, they want to fill their portfolio with, with all different types of diversified opportunities. And so they'll allow us to go out and look for those too. And the nice thing about working with PEs is that they have existing portfolio companies all the time as well. So they might not be looking to grow their portfolio company necessarily, but They'll have an individual company within their Rolodex and their, and their portfolio that they might want to grow through acquisition. So they might have a B2B service company, let's say a, a mortgage lending company that wants to go buy 10 other mortgage lending companies over the next 24 months. Well, they'll right. contract us to go on that sniper mission. So the, what we like to tell our clients when we're, you know, prospecting is that we can go and do a mission, which is, Hey, go find this exact thing. 
or we can act as a shotgun. And, and most of the time we act as both, right? Just because we're on that sniper mission looking for a one individual thing doesn't mean that if we come across a company that might be the next portfolio company for them, we're not going to show it to them. You know what I mean? So we, we like to show them anything that might fit within their bandwidth of what they're looking for. Yeah, got it. So either, you know, it's, it could be new portfolio companies or it could be tuck-ins to their, to one of the existing, pre-existing investments in that space. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so give people a little bit, I mean, obviously, you know, we're not asking for any trade secrets and special sauce, but like just help people understand what is it that you do? Like what kind of marketing you do? Like what, what is it that you actually do to find and connect these, these buyers and sellers? Yeah. So we have, we have two guys that kind of operate our entire front end of the business. They built a AI machine learning tool that allows us to really automate in a customized way to the masses. Mm-hmm. So we're able to do automated, customized outreach to a enormous amount of people in certain targets as the top end of our funnel. That's just yep. one piece. Yep. Then we have, you know, our network, right? Which is all the investment banking relationships we've made, proprietary deals that we're currently sourcing, M&A attorneys, RIAs, CPAs, people who might be sources of deals that we're you know talking to on a daily, ba- daily basis. And they're thinking of us anytime they yeah. see it. But that top end outreach, that happens while Joe and I are asleep. Right. Know, we don't know right. what goes out. Right. We just wake up and say, hey, we got 12 things we got to go over today with these people that reach back out. Every deal or every inbound opportunity from that flows through us. And then we evaluate it and figure out, hey, does this fit one of our buyers? And if it does, we summarize it, we send it to them and say, what do you want to do next? So that that mass automation is something that a lot of funds have an analyst that's sitting there going through pitch book, hunting and pecking, sending an email. We can do a thousand of those in five minutes and they can do one in an hour pretty much. Yeah. So it's just a, an incredible top of the funnel combined with a pretty deep network and a good a good relationship pool of, of deal sources. Love it. I love it. Let's let's talk about the size of size of deals. So you know what 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 do you target? What's the range of, of deal size that, that, that you focus on? Sure. So on the software side, you know, typically these guys are valuing the deals off of the annual recurring revenue, so ARR. And yeah. you know, we'll look at anything that's doing above $2 million. So uh, 2 million is small, small. I think the sweet spot that we see most of the deals getting done at are around 10 to 50. But anything above two, it's something that our guys will take a look at, whether it's for a tuck-in or, you know, whether it's, you know, we work with different groups too. You know, like like you mentioned, you know, there's some, there's some PE, there's some strategics. We also work with a search fund. And so, you know, we, we have a number of different types of buyers that are looking for anything at any given time. But from an ARR standpoint, I would say that, like I said, you know, anywhere from 10 to 50 is kind of the sweet spot. Two million and up is where we'll take a look. And then from a, you know, services side of business or manufacturing business, typically it's got to be doing at least 3 million in EBITDA, you know, for them to consider it as a portfolio company. But again, if they want to do a tuck in, you know, they could look smaller. So if we're looking for portfolio companies, you know, the, the best metric to use is, you know, 3 million of ARR, 3 million of EBITDA. And, and that's where we can, that's where we can be dangerous. So mostly middle market, the lower middle market, you know, lower middle market. Yeah. Yeah. And the the reason being is that, you know, some of these, that's where we fit best, right? You know, some of the, some of the larger PE funds, you know, the, the really big ones and the multi international names, you know, they have 60, 70 people on their team at any given time going out and doing this. It doesn't mean that we can't work with them. You know, at the end of the day, we can definitely specialize in doing tuck-ins for groups like that. And, and that, that can be really effective, 
But where we make the biggest difference is you got, you know, one, two, three people doing business development out of the whole team. And, you know, they're, they're, they're doing it in kind of an outdated way. They're doing yep. it that hunting, pecking, relying on old investment banking relationships that they made 10 years ago. And those are ways to produce deals, sure. But at the end of the day, you know, provide, uh, adding this piece of automation and then, you know, really kind of dipping into a network. We, we, we're like, we're a deal farm, right? So we're, we're just farming opportunities at all, at any given time. So, yeah, which is, which is amazing because, you know, listen, let's face it, the, you know, deal flow is always the first key, right? And quality deal flow, right? I mean, anybody can get deal. I mean, you know, any, any quality BE firm or whatever is going to get pitched a million things, but, but, but quality vetted deal flow, which is really what you guys provide, you know, is, is a huge advantage. And, and, you know, and to, so to get that flow in of, you know, of, of qualified vetted potential, you know, candidates for a firm that doesn't have that huge capacity, like the real big boys is really, you know, a huge value you guys provide. Yeah. Even yeah. with the big boys, it's, you know, it's music to our ears when they say, oh, our, all our deal flows inbound. Yes. Yeah, like, all right, well, you know, we, we've come across deals from groups that one of our funds will say, oh, I've known that guy for 10 years. It's like, well, did you know he's working on a $30 million software deal, deal right now? That's perfect for you. Cause right. we, you know, so, you know, a lot of these old school private equity funds see this as, oh, we're just sending spam emails. It's like, no, we're not. We're again, that source, you know, yeah. if you're waiting for the phone to ring, somebody else is finding that deal ahead of you, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, as so much of the incoming stuff, they have the vet through garbage, right? Nobody else is, they, they got vetted, right? So, all right, let's talk a little bit. So you guys have exposure to a lot of, uh, I mean, different deals and work with a number of the BE firms, strategic buyers. Let's talk about what you're seeing in the market, right? I mean, obviously we've been in a, in a, in a boom time, and I often quote this because it's, 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 I always love the quote. There's a panel of billionaires who had all gone like bankrupt or had major financial problems some point, and they came back and became billionaires. And one of the guys said when, when they asked them, uh, you know, what, 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 what went wrong, right? When things went bad. And his comment was, I mistook a bull market for brilliance, which I think like it's one of the greatest lines ever in my mind. So, so, you know, so obviously we've had a stretch up until recently where, especially in the industries uh, you're talking about, right? On the SaaS and tech side or whatever, even the pandemic didn't, in fact, the pandemic was, a, was, you know, a boom time for some of them, right? But now there are some headwinds that have shown up. The market's been a little challenging, interest rates, inflation, all everything everybody's heard about threat of recession or maybe we're in a recession, who the hell knows? And listen, I've, I've talked about this on this podcast a lot where, uh, there's actually no correlation between deal flow and interest rates, but like I've studied, I studied this, but in your sectors, what are you saying? Because I've spoken to people in various sectors. Obviously I have my own experience in terms of access to capital, in terms of deal volume, in terms of valuations, in terms of deal structures, what's, what's been evolving, what's been changing. Yeah. So I, I mean, deal appetite from these acquirers has not slowed an ounce. They still want to spend their money. The multiples may have decreased a bit in certain sectors. A great company is still a great company. A crappy company is still a crappy company. You know, it's the middle, middle guys that are probably being the most affected. Instead of a four, you might be getting a three, two, you know, multiple on ARR, whatever it is. But what we're seeing in some of these proprietary deals talking to companies is Oh, we're just going to wait until, you know, the beginning of next year and, and see how it goes. You're really 12 months away from things changing because 
if you, the economy is dropping and your numbers are stagnant, that PE fund is going to need to see 12 months of runway before they start evaluating you in a different light. You right. know, so people think, oh, we can just wait till it starts to go back up. If your numbers haven't gone up, the multiple's not going to go up. So, you know, I, I, I always kind of err on the side of caution with people and say, hey, if you're thinking about selling, go through the process because the grass isn't always greener. You know, it's not always going to go up and people are still transacting. Venture money has dried up, you know, as some people are saying, but not for the good opportunities, just for the okay ones. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're seeing no slowdown in an appetite. These guys are evaluating deals the same way they did 12, 18 months ago, and they're willing to spend. They're not going to overpay right now, but they're willing to spend. We work with one company who is the largest, most active acquirer in the world of flatter declining B2B software. So they're licking their chops right now because right. people are starting to realize, I don't want to raise it down round. Maybe I just sell this thing right now and move on to my next venture. And their deal flow has tripled since August. Mm. And, you know, and, and this is the thing that those of us in the deal market know, if you are a seller and you think things are going to come back up in 12 months, you could always get the benefit of that in deal structure, right? You can get that in earn out, right? You can get less money up front, but if you really think it's going to come back, as opposed to waiting that 12 months, you can structure a deal where if it does come back, you get that upside on the back end and some sort of earn out arrangement. So you can have the, you can potentially have the best of both worlds. Now, obviously, if it takes longer and you don't hit it, you may not get it. There's some risk there. It's obviously not the same as getting it up front, but you could end up in the same place ultimately if you're right and the business does come back up, but it's all deal structure. Definitely. If you want to get a deal done, you can. Yeah. It really, it's the, it's the, un, being unrealistic is a number one reason for a deal not getting closed. Just a, a seller just saying, I'm worth 10 times my earnings and you're not in an industry that gets 10x. You know, we just had a, a banker show us a deal. They're looking for 22, 24 times EBITDA on a pest control company. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know of anybody. If anybody listening knows of someone that <laughs> yeah. that high, let us know. Right. Uh, we can't even show that to our buyers. You know, they'd right. say, let's do it. We're not going to spend right. that. Right. Uh, but being realistic, if you want to get a deal done, regardless of how the economy is, you can do it. Love it. Joe, any, any, any additional thoughts beyond what Brian said in terms of what you're seeing out there? No, I mean, I think I, I agree with what you're saying, you know, in which people that, people think that, you know, deal coral might, might dry up. But at the end of the day, I think new deal flow is being made available. You know, we've seen like, you know, venture capital funds that they didn't want to talk to us six months ago. They had nothing for sale. Now they, they do have stuff for sale, you know, you know, investments that, that they, are just not as comfortable with where, you know, a, a private equity group might have a different model and they might be able to come in and, 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 and take advantage of the fact that, you know, Hey, these guys have to get some of these things off their existing portfolio. There might be other companies, you know, other private equity groups that have a portfolio full of businesses. Let's say they have 20 businesses and, and one or two of them, you know, really were, was impacted by the economy. You know, that might mean that the valuation of that company is going to come down, but now at the deal, when before it wasn't, you know, when there was a bull market, there was no deal. You know, the company was doing really well. Now, you know, they, they look at, they, they start doing forecasting for the next three years and they're like, well, we don't know what this is going to look like if there really is a recession going on. And mm-hmm. it might be a good time for us to just get out of this position. Now, someone trash might be someone else's treasure, you know, and they might be in a position where they can buy that company for a lower mu- multiple. And so. With what we do, you know, we're, we're, we're still really kind of bullish on our opportunity because it's just new deals. 
you know, I mean, there's just newer, there's newer opportunities in the market than there were before, you know? So I think that the volume that we're seeing has stayed consistent, if not gone up, but the opportunities that are being presented, you know, are, are coming out of the woodwork really, you know, because maybe the economy has gone a different direction. So there's still a lot of dry powder out there. There's still a lot of, you know, people looking to get deals done. And now there's just newer opportunities being presented because of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a totally good point. And it's interesting, you know, we're recording this in early November. It's probably not going to get released till, I mean, it won't get released till December. We're always out. But this week that we're recording this, we released an episode with John Warlow. And he also made a point that's relevant to this, which is that he, he also said that people forget that very often when somebody's selling, they're also going to be buying, whether they're buying a company, whether they're buying a bigger house, whether they're buying whatever it is, they're going to re, whether they're reinvesting that money in the stock market. And they forget that generally, although asset classes don't always, you know, go in step, but in general, if you're selling high, you're buying. If you're selling low, you're buying low. And he did some studies, he and his team did some studies some years ago where they found that a lot of actually companies that sold lower, actually 10 years later, that entrepreneur did better because they were able to reinvest that money in something, whether it was a business, whether it was, you know, whatever it was, or whether they started doing their own angel investing in other businesses, or they're starting a new business or whatever it was in asset, or even putting it in the stock market in asset classes that had, you know, a lot of upside in the next 10 years because they bought low and they actually ended up doing better than some of the people that sold at the top of the market. So I thought that was a fascinating point as well with some data that he had to back it up where you know, that, that also says, hey, you know, maybe you should at least consider not waiting for valuations to come back to top dollar because remember, you're going to be buying lower as well. That is yeah. interesting. Good I didn't really think about it that way, but it is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I thought that was a, that was a good one. Okay. Guys, so we're coming to the, the end of our time here. I want to, before I ask you each my last question, what's the best way for people to, you know, find out more about you guys, website, whatever kind of contact information you want to go? Yeah, dealgenpartners.com is our website. You know, we do a decent job at laying out how we work with our, you know, clients on, on the site itself. And then our, our emails are pretty simple. It's just Joe or Brian at dealgenpartners.com. People can feel free to shoot us an email, whether they're looking to sell a company, whether they're a private equity group or a strategic buyer that's looking to find out more about what we do, or even if they just want to talk, you know, we, we open any conversation that that's what we pretty much do all day is just have full call, talk to people and drum up new opportunities. So. Love it. All right. So whoever wants to go first, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value, my highest value in life, which is freedom. And freedom to me means everything from freedom from old people, from oppression in the world to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and I haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to each of you and how does it impact your life and business? I think freedom means, you know, to me, it, it's similar to what you just said, you know, being, being able to de- determine your, your own destiny is what freedom means to me. You know, so being able to, you know, look up and see no ceiling on the, the type of opportunity that you're going after. I think that's truly freedom. That's why I was attracted to being an entrepreneur is because I didn't want a ceiling. You know, any job I ever had, I'd look up and the guy, you know, the person that started the company, it looked like they achieved freedom and they were making, you know, call it a hundred times more, you know, money than maybe the next, the next person down. And, you know, they're doing whatever they wanted. Right. And, and I was always like, I don't really want to be that person who's second in line, you know, and that would take 20 years for me to accomplish. I want to be the top at the top. And, you know, I don't want to go on and see a feeling over my head. And second would be, you know, being able to 
do what I want when I want to do what I want when I want with who I want, you know, and, and Brian and I have a really good partnership and we respect each other's time and we respect each other's, you know, families and commitments. And, you know, we work well together in that regard. And, you know, I, I, I think that that's why, you know, we, we've been successful to this point where they continue to be successful is because, you know, we, we virtually let each other, we, we trust each other to the point where we know we're always working hard. We know we're always on, but you know, one day I might be, you know, taking, taking my wife, you know, on a trip and, you know, we'll be, or we'll, you know, go to the Cape for a week. And another day, you know, Brian might be spending time with his girl and, you know, just it, it, it's just having that mutual respect to be able to do what, what, what you want with your time that I think is, you can't, you couldn't put a price on it. That sounds, sounds like we could do a whole other piece of the interview, which we won't right now on how you create a great business partnership, which is a deal and how you, you maintain freedom in, the, in that business partnership. So, but so maybe we'll do that another time. Brian, what, uh, what's your answer to the question? Yeah, no, I, I mean, Joe pretty much sum, summed it up, but I, I think the fact that we're both on the same page with what freedom is, is allowing us to build our business exactly how we want to build it to support that freedom. Yes. And, you know, we, we have a high margin business and yep. that allows us, if we do well to, you know, have some cash and money doesn't buy you things, it buys you freedom. And we're on the same page with, if he wants to go to Africa for a month and work from there, great. I know he's working his ass off, you know, and he knows the same for me. So not having an answer to anybody and being able to trust the other guy in the, you know, in the room is, is a big deal for us. And that's, that's freedom. Love that. Guys, listen, I really, I mean, I, I love the insights. I love your business model. I think it's, I think it's a great thing for the industry to, you know, more people in the industry to be aware about. I'm happy to have had you on. I appreciate you both being great guests on the Deal Quest podcast. Thank you. That was, awesome. that was fun. Thanks for having me. It was really fun and I appreciate it. And, and, and good luck with everything. It's been a, a great show. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.